You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. So when we started in this book, the picture initially painted by Micah was grim. And yet, if you were with us last Sunday, as we turned the page and headed into chapter 4, we realized, we were told, all was not lost. Unexpectedly, really, Micah starts casting this vision of better days ahead. What God promises through Micah is this captivating image of peace. As weapons of war and violence become transformed into tools of agriculture and humanity and creation, we're given this image of humanity and creation flourishing together. That's where we left last week. And today as we dive into chapter 5, this vision, this incredible vision, this profound promise of peace is further magnified for us. If you have Micah 5 open, you may notice if you're just kind of skimming it, that Micah just continues to acknowledge the coming siege of first the Assyrian and then the Babylonian Empire. But in the midst of this acknowledgement, he also continues to forecast hope on the horizon. But as we're about to hear, the Lord's blueprint for peace doesn't come by way of some revolutionary idea or majestic army or even a five-point plan. No. As we're about to hear, peace, as Micah envisions it, will be delivered through a person. With that in mind, with your Bibles open, let us hear from Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of the brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, if your Bibles are open there for a second, let me just take you through what we just heard. Here, in this chapter, specifically in verse 3, if you look at it, Micah describes the time when Israel will be conquered, divided, and sent into exile. He describes it, he likens it to those days of struggle and suffering, to the pain and groaning of a woman during childbirth. In other words, what Micah is trying to capture here is that out of the chaos and violence of Israel's own undoing, a scenario that on the surface of it would seem more catered to death and destruction, it's out of that that God will actually birth the hope of peace, particularly if we're paying attention, a peace bearer. And if you go back to verse 2, Micah says, pay attention, or you might just miss his arrival. For this peace bearer, will arise from a very quiet and unassuming place, a rather small and insignificant town called Bethlehem. 
In verse 4, Micah goes on to describe the all-encompassing shadow, the influence of this peace bearer, one whose shadow will loom so large as he writes to reach the ends of the earth. So big, so broad and beautiful will be the reach of this leader, this shepherd, this savior. Micah finally just declares in verse 5 as we heard it, he will be our peace. Now before the next inevitable question that you would ask, who is it? If you look through the rest of Micah chapter 5, even after Micah hits a dead end. He has no answer. He doesn't know. But we do. We know. We know that Micah has to wait 700 years until Christmas. Until Christmas came for the first time with the birth of a child in Bethlehem named Jesus. We are here, we gather every week because we believe Jesus is the one Micah prophesied, Micah foresaw long ago. This is what all the scriptures after Micah say. They affirm Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one that was promised. What I find really interesting as you look at all those affirmations of what Micah outlines is you can actually find the exact same words Micah uses here affirmed by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.14 writes of Jesus this way, for he himself is our peace. In his flesh, he has made the two one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us. Jesus is our peace. Now, I don't know about you, But for most of my life, as crazy as this is going to sound, I never really associated the person of Christ with the idea of peace. Forgiveness? Yes. Salvation, of course. Healing? Certainly. But peace? Not so much. I mean, and it's not like I didn't associate Jesus with the concept of peace. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it just wasn't one of the main things I thought about when I reflected on Christ. And so that's what I want to explore with you today. I want to explore with you today what is for me this fascinating declaration about Jesus that Micah gives, that that Paul later repeats, this idea of understanding Jesus as our peace. In order to do this, we're going to need to briefly revisit the biblical definition of peace that I outlined for us last week. And if you weren't here or if you don't remember, no worries. It's this simple. The word repeatedly used in the Bible that we translate into English as peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And unlike our narrow and frankly shallow understanding of peace as being the absence of something, the absence of noise, the absence of conflict or violence or war, shalom is this much richer and deeper word conveying the concept of wholeness, connectedness, flourishing. Shalom invokes not only this the idea of inner spiritual or personal peace, but it conveys the idea of the balance, the integration, the harmony of all creation and humanity, including plants, animals, and the earth itself. In short, shalom is life, relationships, and the world the way God intended them to be, the way he created them to be the way he promises they will be again. So as we explore the assertion of Jesus as our peace, this is the definition from which we have to work. We have to consider Jesus through this lens of biblical, the biblical vision of shalom. 
So with this in view, what I want to offer you to this morning is that we can recognize Jesus as our peace, our shalom, in three ways. We can recognize Jesus as our peace, our shalom, first, in who Jesus is to us, second, in what Jesus does for us, and third, in how Jesus works through us. So again, we can recognize Jesus as our shalom, our peace, in who Jesus is to us, what Jesus does for us, and how Jesus works through us. So, first let's perceive Jesus. Let's think about, reflect upon Christ as our shalom, our peace, through who he is to us. We say, we believe, we profess that Jesus is God-made flesh in our humanity. When we see Christ, we see the full person of God and the complete reflection of God through our humanity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this declaration about Jesus in this way, but in other words, what we're saying, what we believe, what we profess is through Jesus, we witness all three of our primary relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with each other. We view all three of these primary relationships as God created them to be perfectly expressed, fully balanced, and in complete sync with each other through Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the first, our relationship with God. Jesus and God the Father were inseparably one in thought, word, deed, and will. Jesus never did anything apart from the Father. He told us this. He showed us what this looked like. Everything Jesus did derived from being in concert with our Heavenly Father through regular time spent in prayer, sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and always, always giving the glory, the credit, the thanks back to heaven. This, the unbreakable fluidity of Jesus' relationship with our Father was evidenced in the power that Christ exhibited. I mean, Jesus silenced demons Jesus calmed the chaos of the wind and the waves. Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead. Jesus forgave sins. Jesus taught with an authority everyone marveled at. He spoke like no one ever had before or since. We hear that repeatedly as the gospel accounts that he sp spoke in a way that no one had ever heard before or has ever since. And the way his words were received, and I don't know if you've ever caught this when you read the Gospels, the way Jesus' words were received, the way it's described, it's not so much like Jesus was reinterpreting the Torah, reinterpreting the way of God, as it was when Jesus spoke, it was as if he was revealing the way of God as if for the first time. As if you were finally hearing it for the first time. Another way to put this is, Jesus didn't share the common sense of the world. We often talk about common, the common sense of our humanity. Jesus didn't share common sense. He didn't share the common sense of the world. He shared uncommon sense. Sense that's uncommon to us, the pure wisdom of God. So Jesus reflects this shalom. He is shalom in how he relates to God. But Jesus also reflects shalom, peace, in how he related to himself. In terms of his own person, Jesus was never conflicted, never out of sorts or at odds with himself, right? Many questioned him, others rejected him, one denied him, several abandoned him, and yet Jesus exuded and operated out of an unshakable sense of identity 
and confidence of purpose. Again, not of his own making, but out of willing obedience to his Father's will. Some tried to expose Jesus as a fraud, a liar, as even the devil of hell itself. But time and again, Jesus remained above reproach. No one could ever find fault with him. We hear this repeatedly said in the Gospels. No one could ever find fault with him. The integrity of his character was without flaw or compromise. He was true to himself, in other words, every step of the way. His complete innocence, undeniable. Many people tried to trick him, fool him, or cause him to stumble. Even Satan tempted him to self-indulge, to exercise a little privilege, to just claim a little credit for himself. But Jesus never wavered. He never called down 12 legions of angels, did he? He always walked the extra mile. He absolutely turned the other cheek. To the bitter end, Jesus drank the cup put before him. You read the Gospels and there's this just, the consistency between what Jesus said and how Jesus acted is ironclad. It's ironclad. And the ironclad consistency of what Jesus, between what Jesus said and how he acted is perhaps most evident in the way Christ treated people. The symmetry and steadfastness of not just his relationship with God, not just his relationship with himself, but Jesus' relationship with others. You read, you listen, you reflect. Jesus bore no prejudice or malice toward anyone. Jesus did not discriminate in his availability and willingness to intervene or advocate for those who were in need. Others drew lines of separation, right? Others walked on the other side of the road, but Jesus always crossed the street. He valued and affirmed women. He treated foreigners and outsiders with respect. Others turned a blind eye, ignoring or justifying themselves before the poor, the forsaken, and the powerless. But Jesus refused to look away, challenging others not only to see, but also to extend dignity to the blind and the leper, to the tortured and the possessed, to the hungry and the hurting. Others held back the children, scoffed at the tax collector, or wanted to stone the adulteress. Jesus, on the other hand, tenderly and openly embraced them, one and all. He comforted them. He blessed them. He told them their lives mattered and welcomed them into the kingdom. You know, today, being the Sunday that it is, a lot of us are going to be watching the Super Bowl, or at least attending a Super Bowl party. And just in case you're not, during the game or at the gathering that you're a part of, no doubt you'll hear talk of the GOAT. The GOAT, the greatest of all time. And if you're a part of a Super Bowl party or watching the game, some today are going to insist that the greatest of all time is quarterback Tom Brady. Now, again, depending upon who's in the room, there might be a little bit of a debate. Some people might throw out other quarterbacks. Someone might even raise their voice in the midst of all that and say, no, they might appeal to someone else. The greatest, the greatest of all time is Muhammad Ali. He said he was the greatest of all time. I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus is the GOAT. Jesus is the greatest of all time because Jesus, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, Jesus is the incarnation of peace, of shalom. 
In all three of our primary relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, Jesus demonstrates, he models how each and all of these relationships were meant to exist and flow into and out of each other in perfect harmony, in beautiful interdependency, with vibrant synergy, just as God intended them to be. Jesus is our peace in who he is to us, but he is also our shalom in what he does for us. Who Jesus is is not the only thing that makes him the greatest of all time. It is also what Jesus surrendered willingly, what he offered on our behalf, and why. You see, peace doesn't mean much. Shalom cannot be unless God deals with the basic human problem of sin. All those relationships I just mentioned, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, all those relationships are out of whack and often in chaos because of a decision going all the way back to the start. In the beginning, in the garden, through their rejection and rebellion against God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke peace. They experienced separation, not only from their creator, not, also, not only from each other, but also within themselves. And their defection from the Lord, their divorce from one another are choices we continue to make in our own time. The disconnect and isolation born of their separation is realized in one way or another in all of our relationships to this day. If human history teaches us anything, it teaches us this. Declaring war against God, the disunity among nations, the chaos within community, the discord that haunts families, the disquiet of our own souls, it's all part of our broken DNA. We're not victims, though. We're rebels. Rebels, and therefore true, lasting, real peace escapes us. Nowhere. Right? Nowhere is the tragedy of our circumstance, this broken peace, more evident than before the inescapable reality of death. Death comes to us all. Death, the Bible tells us, is the inevitable, ultimate consequence of sin. And it makes sense. When we drink the poison of self-righteousness and personal vengeance, mutually assured self-destruction is our only destiny. When we cut ourselves off from our very means of life support, death is all we have left. But death is not what we were meant for. And yet on our own, by ourselves, we can't stop what's coming. We can run, but we can't hide. We can delay it, but we can't avoid it. When a person lays dying, there is nothing he or she can do to save him or herself from their own death. You see, it's before this quandary, this paradox of the life we were meant for and yet the deathbed we've made for ourselves that Jesus is also our peace. Shalom doesn't just come along because of who Jesus is, just because Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus' birth was the initiation of peace, but it was in the giving, the willing sacrifice of his life unto death that he became our peace. You see, for every action, there is a consequence. We know this. For every action, there is a consequence. Nature abhors a vacuum. Consequences must be faced and dealt with for there to be balance, 
for wrongs to be righted, for true peace, real shalom to be possible. Earlier I mentioned Jesus is the goat, greatest of all time. Well, Jesus also literally became the goat, the scapegoat. Jesus is our peace, our shalom, because Christ represented us. Christ took on himself the burden, the consequence of our guilt and shame. He didn't just simply give us the shirt off his back, but his body nailed to the cross, his blood shed on the beams of its rough-hewn wood. Jesus Lee willingly gave his life in our place to embrace the death we all deserve. We think about Jesus, we may think about martyrs. And martyrs are unique. They're people that stand out. Many martyrs have given their lives for something they believe in. Some have sacrificed themselves for those they would call friends. But Jesus surrendered his life for those who called themselves his enemies. For those who didn't even believe in him. Through his crucifixion, Jesus loved his neighbor without fault. He died for all his neighbors. Think about this. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor, my neighbor, your neighbor, is everyone who isn't you. And therefore, if you think about it, in this way, Christ died for all. The God of some religions asks you to kill for them. Christianity is the only religion I know where our God died for us, for all of us. And through such a perfect, sinless, completely innocent and willing sacrifice, peace was restored. Shalom was finally actualized. Why? Why? Because as the one who owed nothing, gave all he had for we who are indebted for everything, Something greater than death was finally realized. Something that bridged the yawning gap of separation. Something that mended the brokenness between us. Love. Love. True, perfect, divine love. Unconditional love expressed through unreserved forgiveness. Eternal love experienced through unceasing joy and endless hope. Everlasting love, so unconquerable, even death could not keep it from leaving the tomb. Jesus is our peace through who he is to us, but Jesus is also our peace, our shalom, because of what he does for us, what he accomplished for us on the cross and through the resurrection. But finally... Understanding Jesus as our shalom means recognizing Jesus didn't just model peace for us or make peace for us. Jesus also works to extend peace through us. Jesus gives us his peace. He literally says that. Read the Gospels. My peace I give to you. Meaning Jesus gives us himself through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus gives us his peace, gives us himself so that we would belong to him, body, mind, and soul. My friends, belonging to and following Jesus is not simply a matter of enjoying peace by and for myself. It's becoming an instrument of shalom, the peace of Christ to and for others. Remember, the long game of shalom is the full balance, the complete restoration, the total harmony of all creation, all life and community. 
As Paul writes, Jesus came down to break the wall of hostility between us and to establish a single new humanity united together through him. And this reconciliation of individuals, this reconciliation of families, communities, even nations, Jesus seeks to accomplish through you, through us. Last week, this is a sermon that builds upon last week, and even if you weren't here, last week, kind of right around the same point, I started to talk about how Jesus doesn't call us to be peacetakers, but to be peacemakers. And I tried to share a few examples of how the Holy Spirit seeks to unleash our creativity and expand our imagination for extending shalom to others. Well, and this happens, despite my best efforts, some of you honestly shared with me during this past week your struggle with being a peacemaker. And I want to say I, I fully appreciate that honesty. I would rather know than not know. Some of you were really honest in saying you just you don't know how to do that. You're not even sure where to begin. You, you don't even know what that looks like. And so, coming back at this again, allow me to point us to a place to start, to practice. And in fact, it's actually something we do each week as a part of our liturgy. And if you're a stranger here, I'll explain it. It's something that we do is sharing the peace of Christ with each other. Now, <laughs> let's be real, let's be honest this morning, okay? For some of us, the exchanging of the sign of Christ's peace can be embarrassing and awkward, right? We're not sure what to say. Is there like magic words? Is there like a code word? Is there like am I supposed, something I'm supposed specific I'm supposed to say? We don't know that many people. Oh my gosh, I sat here. I don't know these people around me. I'm going to turn. And what, am I gonna, what am I saying again? I don't know. And then we, they start to go through it. And you do this in your head. Is a polite handshake enough? Is that, does that work? Does a polite handshake work? Or is an approving nod okay? Do I have to hug everybody? Do I have to hug everybody? And what do I do when someone pecks me on the cheek? Am I supposed to kiss them back? Because I'm not doing that. This is the extent, let's be honest, right? This is the extent of our reflection and struggle with the sign of peace. But here's the thing. During the Middle Ages, the sign, or when it was, what it was called then was the kiss of peace, was actually a solemn moment of reconciliation in which the conflicts in the community were resolved. Did you know that? Before Holy Communion could be received, the fellowship of the community needed to be restored. In fact, one of the earliest missionary efforts of the church was what was called the Great Devotion of 1233. What was going on is northern Italian cities were being torn apart by division. In some cases, it actually amounted to civil war. And in the thick of such rancor and separation, the church sought to make peace. And so at the climax of the preaching, an exchange was established. The kiss, or the sign of peace, between enemies who fought each other outside the walls of the church, but were now worshiping under the same roof. Before the table, in the eating of the one loaf and drinking from the one cup, was enacted the forgiveness and reconciliation made real in Jesus Christ. My friends, offering each other the sign of Christ's peace isn't so much about our making peace with each other as it is about accepting and confessing Jesus, who is our peace, to each other. 
When we offer each other the peace of Jesus, we are doing no less than accepting the basis upon which we are gathered together. And I don't know why you think you're here this morning or why you're here on a regular basis. You may think you know why you're here, but the sign of peace, this little part of our liturgy, in this small way reminds us to recognize the reason we are here is not because we're friends. Because not all of us are. The reason that we're here is not because we're Lutherans, because not all of us are. The reason that we're here is not because we live in Huntington Beach, because not all of us do. The reason that we're here is not because we share the same backgrounds, because many of us don't. It's not because we share the same politics, because we don't. <laughs> it's not because we share the same interests, because we do not. It's not because we even share the same theological opinions, because once again, we don't. That brief moment, that opportunity for the sign of peace is helping us to recognize the reason we are together is because and only because we are one in Jesus' indestructible shalom. That's why we gather. That's why we share the peace of Christ with each other. However nervous or awkward or even opposed we may feel, because extending the peace of Jesus with each other is a step towards fully being who we are, fully being whose we are, rather than accepting the limits of what a world built on competitiveness, rivalry, and fear tells us we are or tells us we ought to be. And as crazy as it sounds and as strange as it may appear, just that brief moment, week after week in the service, doing that is intended in some way to plant a seed that maybe if we can reach across the aisle, maybe if we can look into the eye of someone who's a stranger, an enemy, and say, Jesus loves you and I love you too, that that can transcend not just an hour on a Sunday, but that that can actually happen through those doors out in the world in which we live. Beloved, it's not about how you do it. It's not about how you or I give peace to others. We can't give peace to others. Only Jesus can. Being a peacemaker for Jesus is about yielding to Christ as our peace. Jesus doesn't call the perfect or the unbroken to be his peacemakers, right? <laughs> Jesus invites those who are imperfect and broken to let him dwell with them, to make peace with them and to share such shalom through their lives by filling them with his authority to move in new, bold directions and by giving them his power and capacity to forgive and love others. Again and again, the letters of the New Testament, we hear Peter, Paul, and John talk. Do you remember this? They talk of this notion of receiving a new mind, of accepting a heart transplant, of even submitting to a transformed will. In each and every case, if you go back and look carefully at what they're saying, the source of these changes is Jesus. For them, realizing Jesus is our peace, our shalom, is yielding to letting Christ live in us, or as they put it, having our life be in Christ. Becoming a peacemaker means looking to Jesus as your center. It means learning from Jesus as your guide, and ultimately it means letting Jesus work both in and through you. 
My friends, allowing Jesus to be our peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict in our lives. Hear that. Allowing Jesus to be our peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict in our lives. It means dealing with the conflict by letting Christ reign in our relationships. Having Jesus as our shalom doesn't mean we ignore or deny a world that's not the way it should be. Having Jesus as our shalom is choosing to see and live in the restored creation even while we yearn for that restoration to be completed. Two weeks we've been on this topic and I want you to hear it again. The reality of shalom we're aching and longing for that always seems out of reach has come. It's wrapped up in a person. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. It's a clever play on words, right, that fits nicely on a bumper sticker. Have you ever seen it? Unfortunately, for many people, that's all they think it is. But today, hopefully we've discovered how in the midst of these turbulent times, that pithy little saying is actually true. The elusive peace we continue to pursue in our lives is closer than we realize. It's right within our grasp. In the outstretched arms of the one who was hung upon a cross, through the nail-pierced hands of he who has been risen from the dead, and by the life of his spirit breathed on us, God's promised shalom is eternally offered to us in Christ through Jesus, who is our peace. Amen. Amen.